Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer Podcast, brought to you from the Granite Podcast Studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry and I'm a solicitor practicing in Newry City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Hello listeners, thank you for joining us today. I'm with Jack. Hello. Hi Jack. Uh, today in the studio and we're actually very excited about the guests that we have um, joining us in this recording today and I hope you all take something away with it. We're actually joined by Professor Colin Harvey and Jack and I are very familiar with Colin's work um, not just in terms of the immigration work that we do and his discussions on citizens rights and Brexit etc but he's been very prominent when it comes to talking about the concept of uh, New Ireland and this new vision of a shared island and unity. Now, we have had some of our guests on touching on that issue, but Colin really takes us in depth into, you know, um, his vision, his opinion, and really the legal stance as well upon which all of this um, rests. And I think it's just such a fascinating discussion. We could have gone on for a long time. So just to introduce listeners to Colin who, who aren't familiar with him, Colin Harvey is a professor of human rights law in the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. He is a fellow of the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice and an associate fellow of the Institute of Irish Studies. He is a member of the Management Board of Ireland's Future. And again, we're very thankful for Colin joining yeah. us today. Jack, you took a lot away. <laughs> oh, it was a great discussion, great discussion. I know Colin had taught me last year and it was great to hear him speak again, especially about this issue about Irish unity. Absolutely. So again, what's great about today's show, we actually had uh, contributions from students who presented some questions to Colin. So it's really, really interesting and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Professor Colin Harvey to today's episode. Colin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Delighted to be with you for this conversation. Firstly, we'll just briefly chat about your work. And um, I think Jack and I had attended a number of events recently that you were at. Well, actually, one of them was two years ago. Two it doesn't seem yeah. like that. The Waterfront Belfast and in the Canal Court as well. And you were part of a panel uh, talking about the idea of a new vision for Ireland. And if I remember, it was a very kind of diverse diverse panel there, both in the Canal Court and the Waterfront. So that really started our interest in pursuing, um, kind of not pursuing this matter, but following it. Um, and it was before Jack even worked with me. So yeah, it kind of brought us together. I know, <laughs> yeah, first it? time we met. Um, so <laughs> I think this interview even more so now is quite timely given the current situation we're in, in Northern Ireland in particular. You know, we're in a post-Brexit society in the midst of a global pandemic. There's a debate around citizens' rights growing. We've experienced that in terms of the immigration side of things. Discussions around identity is very, very prominent, especially young among younger people. The protocol, recent street violence and disturbances across NI, which we covered on this programme, and very much back on the table is the topic of Irish unity. So Colin is going to provide us with his insight and experience and opinion regarding primarily the latter of those issues. 
So we'll get stuck in. I think we'll start with what we all remember, which was the Brexit referendum result being announced um, a number of years back. But five years on, I think it's fair to say the momentum around a discussion about Irish unity is rapidly growing. Um, you know, I hear it on the radio. We've read so much about it as well in local in recent press. So just on that point, Colin, do you think that... Brexit was always going to raise the issue of Irish unity or how would it impact that given that I suppose what we see in Scotland like Northern Ireland voters wanted to remain in the EU was this debate inevitable I guess from the moment the UK withdrew from the EU or uh, that fact became apparent well, well first of all Sarah and, and Jack just like to say that delighted to be invited to speak to you uh, on this topic you know and it's great to have a chance to discuss discuss with you and I think yes is the answer to your question <laughs> I think it it was it's inevitable if, if you think about it Northern Ireland was removed from the European Union mm-hmm. against the will of its people and you know in the absence of consent with one part of the island being in the EU and one part being out it seems to me that it would be odd if we weren't having this conversation mm-hmm. because you know what has changed as a result of Brexit is that European Council has made clear April 2017 we have an automatic return option mm-hmm. to the European Union so in fact I, I would almost turn the question round and, and say it would be odd, strange if people weren't contemplating what is a you know core dimension of the Good Friday Agreement at this time mm-hmm. And just on that, the legal mechanisms that might perhaps ground yeah. and establish these discussions we don't really go into that, but I was looking at some of your literature and pieces you published and you do go into great detail. Just for our listeners, can you explain that a little bit more, Colin? No problem at all. One of the, the reassuring things about the debate here is that this is, is all essentially part of the agreement. So the starting point is essentially the Good Friday Agreement in the constitutional issues section there where the self-determination mechanism is set out in quite a bit of detail mm-hmm. and linked, of course, to uh, the principle of consent. So essentially, we already have an established pathway mm-hmm. constitutionally to address this issue. It's in a multi-party agreement, the agreement, bilateral, yeah. international legal agreement as well. And it's reflected in the domestic constitutional legal arrangements of both the UK and Ireland. So I suppose a starting point would be that the the way forward for this debate is is well established. It's not stepping outside of the norm to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, it's about implementing, discussing provisions that are already agreed and endorsed across this island uh, that are there in the Good Friday Agreement. So I think that's an important starting point for your listeners. You know, yeah. No one should be worried about engaging in something that is really at the heart, mm-hmm. constitutional heart of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, and I think that's important to remember. I mean, the discussion on this isn't just emanating from from nowhere. It's there and, uh, you know, and, and some people may not be aware of that fact. And it's only through reading through certain documents um, over the past few years, I got to grips with how that was provided for under the principle of self-determination and consent, as you mentioned. Just another, yeah. I've been looking at some of your, your publications as well, and you commented that the nature of the question of unity is not 
a separate or a detached issue. It is central for everyone considering the future. If the UK can decide to leave the EU, then it seems reasonable to allow the people here the option of responding in kind by waving goodbye to the UK. This does seem reasonable, particularly given the fact that the Good Friday Agreement, as you mentioned, provides a mechanism you know, as such to, to exercise the rights we, we spoke about and for Northern Ireland to perhaps stay in the EU. But it's Northern Ireland and there's always a, a discomfort, a level of discomfort around the notion of even discussing the issue of Irish unity. Do you sense this when you speak with people about the issue and what's your experience of that? Well, I think, first of all, really, it's to, and Sarah, you raise a good point about the issue of awareness mm-hmm. because... You know, knowledge of the agreement you know makes clear that you know the constitutional status of Northern Ireland mm-hmm. rests on consent. Yes, um, and I think that's often spoken about, but sometimes people don't uh, follow through in terms of what it actually means. Mm-hmm. But I think what's been interesting to me is that there's a growing civic and political appetite to have the conversation. Like Sarah, you'll know that. You can hardly pick up a newspaper these days or turn on the radio without a discussion. You There's, you know, university initiatives that are exploring all the sort of boring detail around, mm-hmm. technical detail around how you do a referendum and what happens afterwards. There's civic initiatives. You know, I'm involved myself in the work of Ireland's future. Yes. And so, you know, there's podcasts. There's commentators, you know, almost every commentator across these islands mm-hmm. has had something to say about this issue in the last number of years. So, you know, I detect a growing appetite. And just really to underline what I said at the start, it, that seems absolutely reasonable to me because yeah. um, it would be odd after Brexit if people weren't talking about it. So it's really, really heartening yeah. to me to see it becoming a more, you know, mainstream conversation. So the final point would be, you know, a lot of the discussion has also been really, really quite responsible. The language of the debate is the language of planning and preparing for potential change. And I think that seems to me to be the smart, sensible thing to do. Jackie and I were actually talking about the language during this funny. Um, So in previous podcasts, we've spoke about the importance of language and how we frame things. So uh, And our use of language is always very important, but how can we make the language around unity in a united Ireland and a shared island more inclusive, particularly as it relates to Northern Ireland, Colin? It's a great question, Jack. Starting point, again, is that you know people becoming more aware of what the Good Friday Agreement says and requires. And I think in framing this discussion, it's useful to go back to the values of the agreement. And we've talked about the constitutional issues section, but I think it's also worth looking again at the declaration of support Mm -hmm. at the start of the agreement and the sort of inclusive language there around mutual respect, equality of treatment, parity of esteem, and the importance of human rights in framing the discussion. Also clear that, you know, a lot of the language around this is around not simply a united Ireland, but a new Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I think what that shows to me is that people want to see a bit of imagination yeah. and creativity around the conversation. They're a bit fed up <laughs> with, with the last uh, number of decades, perhaps more, and they want to see something new and different on, on the table. Mm-hmm. I think also myself, I find the language of, of shared island or shared Ireland 
I find that language helpful yeah. um, because, you know, we're talking about how we share the island in the here and now, but we're also thinking about how we might share it in the future. I think that more inclusive language is helpful in perhaps bringing more people into the room or into the virtual room to, yeah. to feel a bit more comfortable to open up around not just how we share things on the island now, but how we share them in the future. And, you know, ultimately that's what a new Ireland, a united Ireland will be. It will simply be a different way of sharing the island in the decades ahead. And that hopefully opens up a bit of space for the sort of imagination and creativity uh, we're talking about. Now, I don't think it's not a blank page conversation because it will be shaped by the agreement. But I think you're right. You know, the language that we use is important. But also, I think we have to acknowledge and be honest with people that the language of the agreement will very much frame the conversation. Absolutely. And I think it's really, I mean, it really strikes me and it's um, just on a personal level, speaking with other people and family members I know, and they seem to be much more pulled into the conversation when you refer to it in those terms. And I don't think it's just blanketing over thing. I think this is our reality. And I think, you know, we take some um, kind of examples from people like Emma D'Souza, who talks about Northern Ireland is no longer, you know, belonging to a green community and an orange community. It's very much, especially among young Younger people who don't identify with either of those kind of party lines and traditional ways of thinking, but they have a new vision themselves and they have been very much part of this conversation and taken that forward. And I don't know, we, we I don't know if you're familiar with her, but we had Reverend Karen Sedaraman on the podcast, Colin, a few weeks back, and she spoke about yeah. this concept of neighbours. And working towards something, you know, inclusive through a wider citizens debate or a citizens assembly. So I guess how in practical terms do we define this vision and maybe appeal to those across Ireland, North and South, um, when we're we're presenting this vision, for example? Yeah, you know, I I know Emma and and Karen and very much agree with the the idea that many people are entering this debate Mm -hmm. with the language of a new Ireland because they're, you know, frankly fed up with what passes for a discussion in the north of the island particularly, but across the island. So they genuinely are engaging because they want to see something new emerge. And also many people feel very uncomfortable with some of the existing labels here. Mm -hmm. Just to give you that, you know, the idea many people involved in the debate around a new Ireland don't find the label nationalist, right? Particularly helpful way of describing themselves because, you know, if you're somebody like me who's been involved in working on human rights, equality, working for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers, you know, that's a million miles away from narrow nationalism, no, but but who still have a view about a new Ireland. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it's a fascinating debate that many people are involved in because they want something transformative. They don't just want a tweak of the status quo north and south. Mm -hmm. They're involved in the conversation because they want it to be transformational in equality and human rights terms. The recognition, you know, that what's happened north and south has been appalling Mm -hmm. in terms of equality and human rights guarantees of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And I suppose ultimately in that, you know, Karen's reference to the importance of citizens' engagement, mm-hmm. you know, that this shouldn't be a top-down discussion, although yeah. the governments will be central to it. They want to hear what people across the island 
have to say. So people's engagement, citizens' engagement, north and south, in shaping the debate, in shaping the new arrangements is absolutely vital. And I think they're right on that. They're right. And you can see that shift already. I mean, especially if you look to the south over the past five to six years, you know, around the referendums that they had. And really a move towards a more modern Ireland, very much built on the back of kind of younger generation and building that Ireland for them. I myself was involved in um, some of the discussions leading up to repeal and you could repeal the 8th, which was a referendum in the South and um, the Citizens Assembly in that referendum. And you could just really sense people were no matter what their views were, people wanted to be involved and they wanted the questions to be put to them. And they were difficult questions. They weren't easy. And I remember sitting in the room at round table events and people feeling uncomfortable. But by the end of it, everybody was happy to have shared their view and had been listened to. So that was very effective. And do you think on that point, is there something we can organise on a formal footing that would reflect that level of I suppose, engagement among citizens across the island on this matter? Well, I think, again, sorry, you're absolutely right to point to the, the way in which you know, citizens' assemblies have already been used very, very successfully. And also, I think for me, that the vitally important role of, of activists and advocates, north and south, in really wanting to see something different and change. And I think they'll be central to this discussion too. You know, people are calling for an all-island citizens' assembly or an all-island people's assembly in order to take forward this debate. And I think that's right. Starting point, that's not to discount the role of governments. That's not to discount the role of the Raptors in the assembly and other Mm -hmm. bodies. But I think a sort of people-led, citizens-led engagement Mm -hmm. uh, through an all-island citizens' assembly would be a great addition. And also, I think, encouraging that sort of activist momentum that has really, as you know, that's what's been leading change on the island in the last number of years, to capture that behind a sort of vision of how we could do better. You know, people are thinking about the last hundred years, but, you know, how are we going to do better in the next hundred years? You know, what can we learn? What lessons can we learn? And I think, you know, I would like to see civil society leading that discussion, but they're also... We have to acknowledge, and this is worries me, people are, are sometimes afraid or they're shy or they're nervous or anxious about entering the public domain in this debate. And really what, you know, myself personally, I've ho- hoped to do is, is by stepping into the public mm-hmm. sphere in these conversations is, is encouraging other people to yeah. take that step as well. And I expect that's not always easy to do so. I mean... Um, the citizen that that level of citizens engagement for me is also important to dispel myths I guess but also to move away from traditional rhetoric and it's just because I've been a commuter and a cross-border worker for many many years I've had the experience of both and obviously back living in the lovely city of Newry Um, I would have had friends of course in the south and people I worked with and they had a it was quite hostile at times and I know a lot of people have experienced this a lot of pushback especially when Brexit happened and I heard comments from very close friends around well don't be expecting you'll be coming down here and it was it was quite common and we had this discussion with another person on Twitter recently but um, I think the only way to get over that and to really drill down and have people open up and kind of you know be part of this shared vision, even the discussion leading to it is to have that level of engagement. But 
Are, what's your opinion on that, I suppose, in terms of people in the South, their perceptions, I guess, about Northern Ireland and how do we get over that and how do we bring them on board into the discussion as well, young and old, people from all backgrounds? Well, I'd start by saying you're absolutely right. You know, this requires concurrent consent, North mm-hmm. and South. So there'll be a vote in the South as well. Yes. And there's a real risk that the South will be taken for granted Mm-hmm. in that debate and I think that would be a, a monumental mistake to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately what we're talking about is unleashing the potential ultimately of the island, north and south, and that that will be beneficial not just for, for people in the north but for people in the south as well, you know, who are in some senses being held back yeah. by the division on this island as well. Mm-hmm. Ultimately what's really, really encouraged me in the last while People like Neil Richmond, you'll have seen recently, yes, Fine Gael TD, Absolutely. entering the public debate with proposals. Jim O'Callaghan, Fianna Fáil, also entering the debate with proposals. And it's been interesting to watch them, you know, articulate a vision that says ultimately this is about realising the potential of the island, not taking the Southern electorate for granted, mm. but that this can be a really quite exciting and also potentially transformative discussion for mm-hmm. both bits of the island, in which ultimately what you know, you're saying to people is we'd be better off <laughs> that the current arrangements aren't working uh, and that we could do a lot better without this division that we have on the island. Mm-hmm. But you're right, you know, that will need to be sold Absolutely. to Southern electorate and there can be no complacency around that. Yeah, yeah and Colin, you're, you're speaking there about people being involved in the debate and and starting to discuss um, a united Ireland or a shared island. And yeah. me and Sarah have heard from a number of commentators um, refer to a new Northern Ireland oh, as yeah. an alternative yeah. to a united Ireland or a shared Ireland. Is that something that you've considered in your research and your and your opinion? Well, one of the things, Jack, Jack, it's an important point, is that there'll be a conversation here about change, if you like, in terms of Irish unity, but also the maintenance of the status quo. Mm -hmm. And I suppose one of the underexplored issues that that you're highlighting there, I think, is the issue is what are those who are arguing for maintenance of the status quo going to argue? And I think one of the underexplored issues is, will there be a proposition that emerges Mm -hmm. for maintaining the union with Britain, but very much in the context, as you described there, of a new Northern Ireland? within that framework. So what ultimately people like myself has been saying is that not just on the, you know, United Ireland side or New Ireland side, but those who are arguing for the maintenance of the status quo, what what is their proposition going to be? Mm -hmm. Are they going to be proposing the the same old Northern Ireland for the next hundred years? Or are they going to be suggesting some alternative proposals around how we share the space in Northern Ireland? And I've perhaps naively thought that we'd be better off for having this conversation of actually requiring people to try and persuade us, you know, of the merits of their competing vision. So, you know, there are people at the moment, there's organisations talking about making Northern Ireland work, you know, as a way of framing that debate. So personally, I I want to hear more about that. What does that mean? What does that look like? Does that embrace 
you know, an inclusive vision of equality and human rights for everyone here. So yeah. to me, it's bring it on, you know, let's have the conversation yeah. on all sides. You know? That's so true. I suppose the only context I've seen that in, Jack, that you, the question you've just raised there about New Northern Ireland is people focusing on the issues that are ongoing here, you know, the legacy issues, the violence and everything that's still kind of unresolved, I suppose. Uh, suppose um, aside from having the Good Friday Agreement in place, many communities are still suffering, you know, poverty, social housing. But I suppose you're right. I mean, there needs to be another proposal as to how to make that work. And I, it's, I have to admit, it's not something I've, I've really seen a huge amount of talk about. I've just seen it pop up here and there. But I suppose it's interesting to see that perspective too. Um. But when we think about as well, you mentioned at the start, Colin, about the coverage that this is receiving at the, at the minute and having yeah. lived in this. I mean, I'm surprised by it, too. I have never seen such. Um, I mean, there's political broadcasting about it north and south all the time. And I'm just referring to you might have seen that the RTE debate as well in the Claire Byrne show. Yeah, um, absolutely. What was that a few few months, maybe a month or two ago? Yeah. And they discussed um, the referendum on unity and there were a range of voices represented there. I think there was quite a, you know, it was made up of very, very um, different parties <laughs> politically and backgrounds and journalists, etc. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were there and of course Sinn Féin representing their stance in the matter from the south and their perspective. But it, it seemed to be this issue of a date um, cropped up yeah. a number of times and um, the mainstream parties Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have in recent times uh, you've mentioned there are a few um, candidates had um, or a few representatives voiced their commitment to United Ireland but whenever the proposal about a date or the suggestion of a date to, to firm this up and to you know put a real date in it so we could work towards it people didn't want to discuss that it seemed and I think in hearing you speak, you did have a date in mind um, for a referendum. What is yep. the story? Is it still that date or do you think um, that is no longer a realistic uh, proposal? Well, again, it's a fantastic question. My view on this is that you need a time frame for mm. the conversation, that, that no successful planning project ever goes forward without some at least notion of what the time frame is yeah. and I think there are too many people on this island that would simply procrastinate for the next hundred years if given half a choice you know yeah. around it so I think that we need some kind of notion of when this might happen although very much bearing in mind the way in which the agreement is set up in, in relation to the conditions that trigger this like I did in 2019 just to give you context mm -hmm. I think it was around the middle of 2019, which is nearly two years ago. I proposed the 22nd of May 2023 yeah, that's right. as, a, as a date for concurrent referendums mm. on the island. And I'll just explain why mm. I did that. First of all, I wanted to make a very direct link to the Good Friday Agreement. That's the 25th anniversary of the concurrent votes on right. the Good Friday Agreement that were held 22nd of May 1998. So I wanted to be clear about that. I wanted a link to the 25th anniversary of the agreement. And the rationale was simply to focus minds. Yeah. I, I had planned to make that agreement link. I'd been to too many meetings, Sarah, where people stand up and speak in the abstract about wanting this or wanting that or wanting a new Ireland or wanting a united Ireland. And then they left the room and did absolutely nothing, nothing. about it. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that in the context of Brexit, it's absolutely legitimate for people to want to be given a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately, this right belongs to the people of this island. 
and north and south. It doesn't belong to Miho Martin. It doesn't belong to Brandon Lewis. It doesn't belong to political parties. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the people. And why should people be continued to be denied that yes. choice when it gives them an automatic return to the EU option. Mm-hmm. You try telling people in Scotland that, that we have an automatic yeah. return option yeah. to the EU. Which they don't. I think, uh, <laughs> absolutely. So, but what's been very reassuring, obviously we're now two down, two years down the line nearly mm-hmm. and not much has happened. So mm-hmm. 2023 is a bit optimistic, but it's very notable. You may have noticed that Bertie Ahern has suggested the 30th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in 2028. Oh, I missed that. And what, uh, <laughs> so um, I don't know what the connection is there between. So I've said 25th, mm-hmm. he's uh, 30th anniversary. Right. But what's noticeable, Sarah, on that program as well, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people on the Claire Byrne program and elsewhere have been using this language of the next decade. Yeah. And the decade ahead becoming absolutely key. Mm-hmm. And I think that's right. But my view is we need some kind of notion of a time frame uh, to do the sort of planning work. But ultimately, just want to end answering this question by being clear. My focus is on advanced planning and preparation of doing the homework first, of not stumbling into referendums unprepared, of not repeating the Brexit disaster on the other island with implications for this island. Yeah. You know, we need to get this right do the work first. And ultimately, what I've been doing over the last few years and my interventions have been trying to encourage political parties and civil society, wherever you stand on the argument, to begin to do that preparatory work so as we know what we're voting for when we come to vote in these concurrent referendums over the course of the next decade. Yeah, I mean, it's so important. We need planning and we need action. Um, yeah around that to avoid that disaster of Brexit. But Jack, you were looking at some of the, we've a few starts when it comes to polling. I know polling's happened for years around this issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a new, a novel concept, but the recent polls are interesting. I think Jack, you've some of the figures there just for listeners. Yeah. So Colin, we just wanted to get your opinion just on the, you've probably seen them, the BBC spotlight polls that came out this month um, regarding uh, questions around should Northern Ireland stay in the UK? Um, obviously, for the listeners who maybe haven't seen the statistics that came out, um, those who were asked whether United, uh, whether Northern Ireland should stay in the UK, 49% said that they would like Northern Ireland to remain in the UK, with 43% saying they'd like to see them leave the UK. And then the same question that was that was asked for those under 45, it, it, it shifted a wee bit to 50% would favour a United Ireland and 43% would favour remain in the UK. So on the back of those statistics, Colin, what would your view be on those statistics specifically, especially without a specific plan or research in place? Well, again, it's just to underline the point that my view is that that underpinned by the closeness of some of those statistics and some of the information that's emerging around younger generations is that, that we're on a clear trajectory towards these referendums happening over the course of the next decade, in my view. I think the statistics, the evidence underlines that that's the direction of travel mm-hmm. in the time ahead. Now, the outcome of those referendums remains an open question. I don't think anything is inevitable, right? So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily agree with people who say, you know, Irish unity is inevitable. I don't think it is. Yeah. But I think we're, we're rapidly approaching the point when the Secretary of State will be in a position where he either must 
uh, do this or where uh, he will do this, you know. Yeah. And so I think it seems sensible to me to, to get ready. What's striking in those figures is if you think about it, you know, 40, if you lived, you know, in a jurisdiction where 43% of the pop, you know, the, the population would leave, you know, or would enter a new arrangement <laughs> mm. today, you know, that, that, that's really, really striking. It is. You know, it st- struck me thinking back to the Scottish independence referendum, you know, the percentage points that the SNP put on uh, as that campaign accelerated, you know. So yeah. I think, you know, f- for both sides in this, it's, it's all to play for. But ultimately, what I want, like yourselves, is I want to hear the arguments, you know. I, w- yeah. I want to hear what, you know, what's a New Ireland, what's a United Ireland going to look like? Mm-hmm. If we stay in the UK, well, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to be... I want to hear what those arguments are. Yeah. I want to see a bit of substance first before we're asked. Absolutely. Um, I think that's crucial and that's how we bring people into the, the conversation, I guess. Um, and that's the, peop- yeah. the big questions people will be answering. Well, this podcast, we have a lot of listeners and, and students as well who've been engaging with us and um, young aspiring lawyers. So Jack was actually able to get a couple of questions, Colin. I hope you don't mind answering from students yeah. who submitted it into the, the show. So Jack might take us through a couple of those. We had quite a few. You've selected. Yeah, yeah selected um, maybe three if we, can, if we can get through those we can maybe call this the student section or something um but you know, the, the, the first question is again it's, yeah. it's all around this area but the student was asking so the office of secretary of state for northern ireland has repeatedly refused to provide clarity on the criteria required for triggering a border poll um there's been no fewer than 12 secretary of state since the signing of the good good friday agreement in 1998 and none have considered a border poll do you believe, Colin, that this reflects the position of the current Conservative government or a policy specifically towards this region? Well, again, it's a good good question. You know, my view is successive governments uh, have failed to give us transparency and clarity around these provisions of the agreement in the Northern Ireland Act. You know, you would almost think from what has happened that this element of the Good Friday Agreement is not really being taken sufficiently seriously until now. Mm-hmm. You know, in a post-Brexit context, some of the hard thinking is only starting to be done. You know, your listeners may be aware that I have written repeatedly to Secretary of State since mm-hmm. December three times now. I've got three responses from the Northern Ireland office. Yeah. Now, I'm very aware of the judgment of the Court of Appeal in the McCord case. Yeah. I'm very aware of the flexibility that the Secretary of State has around triggering this process, but I still think in my view that although he's not legally compelled to provide us with, you know, his policy in this area, he could answer some basic questions around the evidence that he's using, how often he reviews that evidence, who he consults with, what the decision-making process is, because ultimately, you know, you've got something that could have a, a, a really dramatic impact on this island, being triggered by the Secretary of State uh, the British government, if you like, on which there's still insufficient clarity and certainty and transparency. And I know, you know, people will say, well, you know, there's been the Court of Appeal judgment, they have this flexibility. But I think it mightn't be legally compelled to tell us, but as a matter of basic political courtesy, if you like, I think it would be very, very helpful if Brandon Lewis would spell out in a bit more detail the sort of evidence he's relying on to make this assessment. Mm-hmm. 
That's yeah. right. And we had Kieran O'Hara actually on this show representing the McCord case yeah. as well. Talk about that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. And then obviously that, that's that's looking towards Northern Ireland. We'll just uh, have yeah. a wee, have a wee look at, at the at the Republic. Um, as we've seen a recent electoral rise of Sinn Fein in the south, um, as real contenders for getting in, into the southern government. Has this inhibited the current Irish government from making steps towards preparing for unity, given that they appear, this in opinion of the student, <laughs> at all cost of abandoning their efforts as co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement? Is it due to a fear that if Sinn Féin gain access to the government in the south, that they'll hold positions of power in both the Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland? Well, again, it's, it's a good question. I suppose your last point frames the discussion. You know, Sinn Féin are a party of government in the north and they're the main opposition party in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no secret that they're a political party that has Irish unity as a core policy objective and there's at least a reasonable likelihood that they may well be part of a future Irish government. Yeah. You know, my view on that is, uh, although we've talked about Brandon Lewis and Secretary of State and his role in all this, I think ultimately it will be when the Irish government decides now is the time to take this forward, when pressure starts to come from Dublin, if you like, Mm -hmm. on the British government to move, that we'll see real, genuine progress around this. Um, And obviously then Sinn Féin, because it's so central to their sort of policy agenda, if they're in government in the South, I suspect one of the first agenda items with the British government will be precisely this. So I think it's obviously had an impact. Yeah. It's had an impact, I think, on the other parties as well. You know, the Shared Island Unit has been established, and I know know that, you know, Micheál Martin is rather uh, anxious and shy about referring to the unity question, but I think you have to see that in the light of, mm. of this growing conversation. There's no way that Shared Island Unit would have been created without the sort of momentum that's been building around this discussion as well. And, you know, I think it's part of a wider agenda of planning for the future, whatever language you want to use. You know, I've been in discussions with people around the work of that unit, and almost everybody in the room thinks you're talking about the United Ireland debate, even though you're in a room talking about a shared island. But Maybe just the end as well. Yeah. You know, we've talked about Neil Richmond and Jim O'Callaghan. Neil Richmond and Jim O'Callaghan have put down on paper very, very detailed proposals, you know, mm-hmm. on the way forward. And I think that puts pressure, if you like, on parties like Sinn Féin, uh, parties like the SDLP, to spell out in a bit more concrete detail what they mean as well. So I think, you know, it's just reassuring and, and heartening to see that members of political parties political parties themselves, including Sinn Féin, has just published a, a recent document on the economic benefits of the United Ireland, beginning to think in a bit more detail about what all this means. And I think the more people that are involved in that discussion, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking, speaking of Sinn Féin, we'll, we'll finish on a question about their their friends in Stormont, the, the DUP. Um, obviously, at the time of recording this, Arlene Foster has announced that She'll step down as the leader of the DUP and as well the deputy first minister um, position. How do you think uh, the United Ireland referendum, the shared island referendum, and the removal of the NA protocol will influence the next appointment of the next DUP leader? I think it's a great question, but ultimately, 
my view on this is that the leadership of the DUP doesn't change the facts on the ground, yeah. you know, in terms of what's happening. Um, the agreement is there. The protocol is there. There's a commitment to implement uh, both. You know, the protocol is, is negotiated by the European Union and the UK, and I think there's a clear commitment there to implement yeah. the mm-hmm. protocol. Ultimately, yeah. I think the new, new leader of the DUP faces the same challenges that the previous leader of the TUP uh, yeah. also faced. So I, I think that doesn't change much about the facts on the ground. But, you know, Jack, what's been really interesting in the last few days and actually the last 24 hours, listening to commentators is that, you know, how many commentators are suggesting that this will be the DUP leader that leads unionism into a referendum campaign uh, here? Mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating, it you is. know, and it, it maybe takes us back to the start of the discussion. I was listening this morning to the radio and, and people were basically just assuming, yeah. you know, the next leader of the DUP will be leading unionism into a referendum yeah. in Northern Ireland. And that, in a sense, is testament to the extent to which this conversation has now become a default mainstream uh, discussion. And I suppose for the DUP as a political party, you know, a factor that they need to to, to to think about is, you know, how are they going to extend their electoral appeal? You know, we've seen what's happened to unionism electorally over the last number of years. You know, if, if unionism is going to maintain the union, uh, the DUP as part of that bigger political project is going to think very hard about how it builds, has to think very hard about how it builds a persuasive case. Yeah. They persuade a majority of people here to continue with uh, the current arrangements. But the facts on the ground for unionism or for the DUP uh, won't change yeah. with DUP leadership. And also worth bearing in mind, Jack, that you know there, there's, a, there's a history here of people that were once regarded as formidable, yeah? You know, formidable, yeah. you know, the, the, the toughest in their political parties yeah. end up in the end being the ones who make the deal and implement things they're yeah. ostensibly opposing, you know? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Gosh, well, there were great questions and thank you for answering those. Yeah, thank Colin. you, Colin. Thank you. Um, thank you. So really, really great. Um, we're living in very interesting times and we're witnessing a lot. Absolutely. But just finally, um, and I guess yep. it's just le- nicely leading us into our final question yep. here. Um, this generation, us, our young people, have witnessed and I suppose are witness to seismic changes going on around here, happening socially, politically and historically. So we ask all of our guests in this show just to comment on the importance of activism in this era era, and what activism maybe means to you, Colin, and how you would encourage listeners who are interested in your area of work and more broadly matters of public law, human rights law, to pursue a career or engage, I suppose, in change to make things happen. What would your advice be to our listeners? Well, first of all, I just want to take the opportunity in our discussion today to thank and commend you know, all the civil society activists mm-hmm. across the island who are the people who make change happen on the island. Yeah. You, you might not hear their names, might not know who they are, but I'll tell you what, my life and career and my work has taught me that they are very often the people who are making change happen on the island of Ireland quietly every day of the week. So I just want to applaud them, yeah. uh, people whose names you will never, never hear, uh, who make a real 
difference in that. So ultimately, you know, Sarah and Jack, what it's about, mm-hmm. you know, I got involved and I'm involved in the work I do because, you know, it may sound naive, but, you know, I want to change the world. You know, you can make a difference. We may be in difficult times, but things can change. Yeah. Things can change very quickly and things change through people and activism and advocacy. So it's about making a difference. And ultimately, for me, you know, for the younger generation, you know, what an unbelievable project to be involved yeah. in, to be involved in a project of transforming uh, this island for the better. Nobody wants a new Ireland mm-hmm. to be, uh, you know, a place of poverty, inequality and injustice where rights are denied. Wanted to be absolutely fundamentally based on a very, very ambitious vision of equality and human rights. And you won't make that change happen if you don't get involved. So get involved, you know, be part of something that will fundamentally change uh, this island for the better and change people's lives. So the more people are on board with this, the better. And, you know, those are the people every day of the week who are quietly transforming the lives of people up and down this island and I just want to commend them all Absolutely today. and hear here to that from us yeah. but fantastic advice for, for our listeners Colin um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk about all of all of those issues and it's something that's live it's something that we're all interested in we all should be a part of because it involves us so it's fantastic to have your perspective and your opinion thank you very much for joining us Thank you very much Colin Thank you, Sarah and Jack. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.